I mean, one of the, the lovely things from um, the project that we're mentioning um, in Hawthorne is that at the end of the job, the the builders who are quite an accomplished sort of large builder said well it was a delight to work with the drawings they were so well developed and there was so much information to work from it was so lovely to work with that Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University and I'm here with uh, Robert Simeone. He's an architect uh, who's been doing wonderful work, not just lately, but throughout his career. Welcome to the program, Robert. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you. Robert, you have covered a, a, a lot of ground. Um, I mean, people might know your work from the Stoke House, mm-hmm. St Gilda Stoke House, which is um, quite a significant building. But I'm interested in starting the conversation about this house that you've entered the awards this year, entered into the awards, the um, AIA Victorian chapter. It's an interesting one. It covers so many different uh, things for me in my mind. Um, maybe... Tell me about the house to start with, because it's unusual. It is an unusual house. Um, thank you for the introduction, Stephen. Um, the The house was actually built the late 19th century more as um, two houses, and then it was significantly altered in the 80s, and a lot of the original sense of the building was lost, even though from the street it appears to be um, still quite intact or when we started working on it. And I think the aim was really to try and um, understand what the real sense of the house was and, and is in an attempt to um, develop that further. We were very keen to... Um, keep its presence within the street. It's very... It's a heritage area? It's a heritage area. It's St James Precinct, so it's quite tightly... In Hawthorne. In Hawthorne, quite carefully um, sort of um, curated in a way by the residents. They're very careful about what happens there, as as they should. Um, But we were really keen, even though its intrinsic heritage value had been lost, it still had a strong presence on the street and it appeared as... A heritage house and we thought that we didn't want to lose that to the street it also acts in combination with a number of houses on the street and so the idea was to try to peel back as much as we could the work that had been completed in the 80s that was in a sense irrelevant and then um, events of the remaining qualities of its heritage value and then add a new living section for the clients from there. When you look at the house from the street, um, and I'm not going to give away the address, uh, but when you look at it from the street, there's this side uh, tower that kind of looks original, but then it kind of looks a bit shadowy as if it's kind of slightly new. You're not quite sure when it was built and the borough charter which is the heritage guidelines for australia generally people think of that as separating the past and the present Mm. and making a clear delineation between the new intervention but in this case you haven't you've kind of created almost like a shadow to the original house yeah it was a very deliberate ploy i mean i've always found the tenants of the borough charter um, something that we try to abide with or buy in our work when we've worked on heritage houses. I mean, it's a lovely idea as as little as possible, as much as necessary. And um, and so therefore, um, 
but this was a little bit different. So we kept the original part, but when we started looking at this um, addition at the back, the original house felt very thin, the original original section. And um, when you peeled away the work from the 80s, and it felt quite thin and insubstantial to the street, but also felt um, as though it lacked a certain depth in the way the house felt. And so the idea was this... Um, mid-tower, as you said, slightly shadowy with blind windows so that it was slightly ambiguous and it, we would locate the lift in that. So, so almost Escher-like. Almost, yeah. That, that's a good description, yeah. Those houses, I mean, these houses, you know, it's, it's classical. Uh, I remember walking into it for the first time and uh, I thought it was very reserved, but it spoke to me. It was uh, houses kind of either speak to you or they don't speak to you. This one did speak to me. There was wonderful symmetry in the house, but there was a lovely play of the new and uh, obviously it's been reworked completely, but you felt as if you were going into something quite special. How do you create that magic, Robert? How do you make something that could go either way, you know? How do you make it so special? Um, that's a difficult <laughs> question, Stephen. Um, I guess you you look at each room as a room and then you look at its, its slippage or how does that room begin to fall into other spaces or how does it have its own sense of authenticity and yet um, relate to another room adjacent to it or beyond that. And then... Um, I think there's also that um, that view that exists beyond, which is quite important in in sort of how do you give the room some sort of charge or a sense of um, not being um, static, that there's something happening. It's an also it's an interesting one the way you've extended it because it's uh, tell me how you've extended it, what approach you oh. used. It's not a clear. Uh, juxtaposition between old and new there is almost that fading into a different zone and how did you do that well there were a couple of um significant sort of gestures one was a large east facing courtyard so that the original house would look onto that and it acted as a separator but in a way the emptiness of the courtyard acted as it becomes its own space it acts as a this joining device between these two in a way, quite separate buildings, but act as a connecting point. And the courtyard was quite a deep, large courtyard in residential or domestic terms. It's almost, in a way, it's almost like a civic, little civic square in its proportion. It does have a civic quality. And and it's also quite tall. Um, normally when we use courtyards, which we, we use a lot in our work, um, we, they tend to be single level, but here it's very deliberate, a double story, so that the scale of the courtyard could take that. And in fact, if it didn't have that containing feel, it would be lost as an almost, an, it sounds a bit twee, but an outside room or an outside space needed a certain height to give it a reverberance to feel quite special. And there's some references that, um, you know, I always you know, quite um, absorbed in the work of Giorgio de Chirico. So, you know, the sense of that emptiness is something I've always felt beguiling and, and wanting to sort of capture what that means. I think the other thing that I noticed, particularly when I first saw the house, was uh, a change in direction. 
I mean, changes in direction don't happen just overnight. Uh, they kind of they evolve, and there's often trends. I hate the word trends because this isn't about trends, but. When I walked in and I saw all those very heavy uh, gold-framed, ornate oil paintings of the owner's ancestors on the wall, you know, from the 1850s, the 1860s, and they were all curated in a way that you actually made it look almost contemporary. Mm. You know, it was a contemporary, and that's partly the credit of the owner who has that eye for putting in, you know, marble busts. And I know people have been looking at the past more carefully in more recent times, but I think that house really, to me, was a very strong gesture about where we're heading in terms of looking more closely at the past than we did, say, 10 years ago when you kind of anything gold-framed or a gold-framed mirrored, you'd kind of just say, oh, yuck. Yeah, I we had quite a few detailed discussions with the client about where certain paintings might go or how things might be used and you know lighting then becomes quite important because then you need to be able to pick up certain pieces like the the bust at the end of a of a long view it's quite a deliberate positioning and then certain lighting effects are are created to emphasize that but I think the other thing is that we began to think about the spaces as being very generous, um, very sort of um, complementary spaces. So the corridors would actually be like galleries, so that the house is so big that we needed a scale of space was commensurate with the house itself. And so what we began to develop was the idea of the gallery space as corridor space, but then we needed to quieten it down and so the choice of colours became quite a detailed discussion with the client um, for the different areas in different parts of the house. I mean Robert this house couldn't have worked the way it has without this client Um, she's obviously quite gifted in her own right. Agreed yeah. And really has a fine eye so she's kind of mixed you know wonderful antique pieces like the the dining table that fits Mm. 20 in the middle of the house framed by you know these very serious portraits Uh, but she's got that eye and how difficult is it to get those clients to actually you know whether it's this kind of how difficult is it I think as an architect you're always lucky to have clients like that because you can't create um, spaces like this without the engagement and the, the deep engagement of a client and it's always very special that level of engagement and that level of discussion and at um, from the beginning, like the the higher aspirations to the the detail of where something actually is going to go, and there's a strong endurance that's required through the length of a project. And very grateful to our client for that endurance that she's shown, but also that engagement with us and that trust. I mean, there's a lot of trust that a client shows in an architect. Does it? At what point does it become? questions just disappear and you just get complete rain over something or doesn't it happen that way? I've never really found it to be like that but I found it becomes um, a very engaging as with other clients a very engaging um, discussion about the higher sense of what a space means and how you might use it so I don't and I'm not necessarily looking for 
free reign because it, it's relative to the person living in the house and to understand how they live and want to live. So you need that engagement for it to be relevant and interesting. Robert, a lot of your projects tend to be long-term projects. I mean, they're substantial houses. Um you know, they're long-term projects. I mean, you're working on one in Armidale at the moment and I uh, hope I'm alive by the time it, uh, <laughs> it's finished. And so there seems to be that, that wonderful journey that you'd have to be uh, not brave but incredibly patient to actually, you know, they're very complicated buildings, they take time. But how challenging is it when you get a client who's, you know, how rare is it to get a client who's prepared to wait? Well, often these days, Stephen, it's also just the um, the bureaucratic and, and requirements of authorities. You know, town planning can often take, you know, sometimes two years and often with VCAT or not VCAT if, if you're lucky and you can negotiate your way through. And then, you know, um, you need to be able to, have very good documentation for large complex houses is not only to capture um, the intent of the project but also to capture the client's requirements and work through it carefully and then also from the point of view of good documents help to um, reduce variations and difficulties with builders mm-hmm. because builders appreciate well-developed drawings. I mean one of the, the lovely things from um, the project that we're mentioning um, in Hawthorne is that at the end of the job, the the builders who are quite an accomplished sort of large builder said, well, it was a delight to work with the drawings. They were so well developed and there was so much information to work from. It was so lovely to work with that. So, Is that, yeah. is that something that you're particularly mindful of from the start, really thorough drawings? Well, I think it, it helps us as architects to explore and capture the intent of the architecture and but also then if you want a builder to build well and to understand what it is um, you, you know the builder needs a certain level of documentation to achieve that and through the subcontractors and the whole procurement stage and I suppose having really well documented plans actually makes it easier for you because there's less need for questions. Every there's minute. always questions, oh. Stephen. There's always <laughs> questions. I think what it does is it it helps to what what we would hate to see is when things need to be done because they're not right. But it, they also, the interesting thing about being able to set things out early because it's so well documented is that you do allows, there's always a need for nuance to understand that maybe this just needs to be moved a fraction or here or there. And so if it can be set out early and adjusted as you go along, then you're working with the builder rather than working again. You begin to feel form, you know, a more of a team-like or project team feel to it. The other thing, Robert, is, you know, you've won numerous awards. Um, I'm sure your wall, there's not much space left on your wall. Um, yet you're also very, I mean, you're, very humble, but you you know you take on smaller projects where a lot of established architects and you're an established architect now would probably say, oh, I'm not doing a bathroom and a kitchen, you know, get a decorator in or get someone else in. But you seem to be really interested in smaller projects, even if you do, you know, you do larger new houses. But, you know, if someone rang and said, oh, hi, Robert, you know, I've got a problem with my bathroom, I'm not happy with it, you'll go out and have a look at that. Well, I like 
working at different um, at different scales. I think there's something that I enjoy the you know thinking through things at budgets and scale of building and trying to find the appropriate solution within what needs to be reviewed. Um, so I, I quite enjoy that um, shift. Yeah, no, it's refreshing because a lot yeah. of architects would, you know, rightly so, you know, you don't make money on bathrooms and kitchens, but in your position you would actually take the time to look at it. Well, it's also nice and I think it's um, always a privilege when a client will say to you, oh, we've seen this project of yours and we'd love you to work on this. I think yeah. there's something about... Um, that needs to be respected in a way. And I suppose the other thing is, you know, it might start with a small job like a kitchen, bathroom, but then they might, you know, the same clients might end up doing a new beach house or a new, you know, commercial project and say, oh, Robert, we really enjoyed working with you on that one. So, you know, we've got a much bigger project down the line. It, it may do, but that's really in, not in the, the, the intent. Reason. I think the intent is to find a sense of... Um, Completeness within each project, whether it be large or small, and and it's it's um, it's always exciting to go and see work that needs to be done, and to think, okay, well, how do we find that completeness? How do we find that otherness that you need to find in this? Yeah, I think that's a good word, and you use it quite a lot. Otherness, I think that's what I love about your work. There is an otherness, something that you can't. It's not expected. It's something that is revealed or it's a surprise it's an otherness and I think that's what makes it so engaging it's not predictable I think most of your work or all the work that I've seen is all quite different I mean you obviously love concrete Um, a number of your houses now are concrete you know Um, so you know you very rarely repeat yourself Robert I mean there's details you obviously enjoy using and take from one project to the next but that's different from an actually different completely different design and it'd be much easier just coming up with the same scheme over and over again isn't it well i think it's just um i've never really thought about it in those terms but i think um each each side each client has such a a varied series of requirements and and um in a way um restrictions by the nature of the site or planning or building or just the way things are where the sun comes up or you don't get sun in a certain time. I think each side requires that level of engagement and their responses have to be quite um, unique for that. Now, Robert, I, you don't have to answer this question, but I know you as a friend also, as as well as an architect, um, that you're not, you don't particularly like um, uh, conflict you know, you don't like conflict with neighbours and you don't like conflict with, uh, you know, local government. But how difficult is it when you, you know, and you've been going for a long time now, you walk into a, a council, you present something so strong as an idea and the local, the junior planning officer behind the council just says, no, that's not going to happen. Like, how do you feel? I think it's, you know, that it's a much used phrase at the moment, but it's probably the most apt is resilience. As architects, we are really resilient. Most everyone who is an architect today, I would say in Melbourne, you know, you need to um, find it and keep battling away, um, at, at, particularly when you know it's probably right, you know. and So what do you do? Do you keep going back again and...? 
you know, trying to convince that. Well, this comes back to your earlier question yeah. about time as well, because yeah. um, you know there are opportunities when you might be able to, through a negotiation with the council, you might be able to find a solution that is you know, 70% what you'd like and 30% maybe gets left behind. And, and then it becomes a discussion with the client, well, how far do we... Compromise. To compromise or no, do we hold fast? And and it's often, you know, quite difficult discussions in terms of, well, what do you give up? What do you keep? Or do you actually say no? And sometimes you say no and you... Go to VCAT. Keep going to VCAT or you, um, you find other ways to... Um, try to explain what it is and a faith that it's right and um, and each one is just everyone is so different yeah. um, Robert COVID for the last two years has been very challenging look prices have gone through the roof people are anxious about whether they can afford things they can't afford things things have to be left out where two years ago they would have been included how has it affected your practice? Because I think it would have affected it like other people. Well, I think um, it's affected it through, like most other practices, where just slowly all the staff coming back now into the office over the next few weeks. And um, so it's one thing about being able to collaborative in person, work through things around a table rather than via Zoom together and that sort of thing. And I think from point of building procurement it is difficult and um, we generally form quite tight connections with builders so it begins to earlier on or when we feel like there's a problem coming to sort of try to find solutions in terms of what the materials would be or contractually how do we allow for this to you know find to give the builder some comfort that we can cope with something um, clients always want security and there's a question of risk. So the discussions, I think, just become more protracted and um, and we need to just keep trying to build in contingencies where we can. And how do you do that? I mean, you know, like if, if you've got your heart set on an on a, uh, in-situ concrete house <laughs> and before COVID and it's all documented and, you know, you're really excited about it and you kind of start going out and buying Japanese clothes because you think that's going to look good in the house. And then you're told it's gone up so much and it, you can still have it, but it's going to cost you so much more. How do you deal with it? Well, thankfully that situation, <laughs> or unfortunately, hasn't quite come to pass with us. But I, I, I don't honestly know how to answer a question like that. Um, I would have hoped that it was something that wouldn't just suddenly just appear. I think the last two years have been quite a reveal for all of us as architects in terms of the problems about supply chains, the problems of labour costs, material costs, the complete volatility of the market in terms of particularly the cost of timber and steel and then what's available, what tiles can you get, you know, is, you know, on a project we had a one joiner lined up and he pulled out and now we can't find a joiner because everyone's booked up for a year. So I think um, you just keep working away to find a solution. I have, yeah. It's a very inelegant response to a question. I don't... Yeah. I, there is no easy answer, Stephen. Yeah. It's, um, 
every sort of facet can be problematic at the moment. Yeah. Um, look, Robert, I continue to follow your journey. I think you're an amazing architect and I've always loved your work. And, um, and let's just hopefully um, things calm down a bit for everyone and um, evenness. But I'm not sure. I think it's going to be a torrid time for the next few years. And um, I think really this is the time to think in a completely different way to what you've been thinking previously. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I think that's probably a key point to end on in a way because you feel that there is some kind of change coming and understanding that. Aside from um, changes in terms of building practice and procurement and trying to understand it in terms of climate change and other environmental issues, there's another change in the whole sense of what the idea of architecture is and how we relate to this. So I think I think there's a degree of um, trepidation, but there's, there's also a hint of excitement in all of that. Well, I think we'll end on a positive note with the excitement because I, I want to face 22 in a very positive way. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for asking. You've been listening to uh, Robert Simeone, uh, noted Melbourne architect, and you've been listening to Talking Design in Melbourne at RMIT University. So thanks so much for listening.